0: All day, every day, we make decisions. Some are so small, we barely think about them, such as what to have for breakfast or which route will avoid the most traffic on the way to work. Others are more consequential, whether to take a new job or how to spend or save our money. And some decisions can have life or death consequences, such as whether to get a vaccine or evacuate ahead of a hurricane. Over the past several decades, psychologists and other behavioral science researchers have become increasingly interested in understanding how people make decisions like these, why we so often make bad decisions, and how even seemingly small changes in the way that choices are explained and presented can make a big difference in the decisions that people make. So what have researchers learned about decision making? Why do people make bad decisions? Do bad decisions happen when people don't have enough information or when they're overloaded with too much? How do behavioral scientists define a bad decision anyway? And how can decision researchers' findings best be deployed in the real world to make a positive difference in people's lives? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. We have two guests today. First is Dr. Lace Padilla, an assistant professor of cognitive and information sciences at the University of California, Merced. Dr. Padilla studies how people use data visualizations to make real world decisions with life or death consequences in areas, including hurricane evacuations and vaccine uptake. Her lab's mission is to help people make the best possible judgments about their health and safety by developing and testing new ways to visualize and communicate complex data. Our second guest today is Dr. Hannah Perfecto. Dr. Perfecto is an assistant professor of marketing at the Olin School of Business at Washington University in St. Louis, where she studies how consumers make decisions. Much of her work also focuses on improving research methods, including designing decision-making studies that are more likely to replicate in real-world settings. Thank you both for joining me.
1: Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. So
0: I just mentioned about how behavioral science research can help people make better decisions, but the term better can be a subjective term. Uh, What makes something a bad decision? How do you define good versus bad in your research? Dr. Padilla, let's start with you.
1: I think different groups of people define good and bad decisions differently. And, you know, there's some people who might think that a good decision would be the best computational decision. If we had all of the information available, we could, you know, calculate the most optimal decision. But the truth is, is that humans don't function like computers. And from my standpoint in my work, I think of a good decision as someone making the you know, using all the information available to them to the best of their ability. And in contrast, we can compare that to a bad decision, and those are a little bit easier to identify. And I often see bad decisions as clearly someone misinterpreting or misunderstanding information that was presented to them that would ultimately lead to some type of error in their reasoning. You two come to
0: the topic of decision-making from very different angles. So let's talk a little bit about each of your research backgrounds. So Dr. Perfecto, in your research, what's the main thing you're trying to understand about how people make decisions?
2: That is a great question. So I would say the work that I do tackles this issue from a, a broader lens, for better or for worse, than uh, than Dr. Padilla's. Uh, I spend a lot of my time making sure that uh, the work that we're all doing in this field of, of decision-making research is able to actually have a useful impact out in the world. So the work that we're doing, we're not learning about how people make decisions just for the fun of it. The hope is that in the end, uh, we're actually able to improve people's lives down the road. Uh, one area that I'm focusing on right now and some ongoing work is realizing that a lot of the ways that we've previously studied decision-making is pretty abstract. Uh, So we are using very uh, hypothetical designs, sometimes a little bit strange, a little bit artificial, uh, and that's done so that we can have a really clear understanding of what is contributing to somebody's decision. But out in the world, the world is not clean, the world is not uh, so tightly controlled. Uh, And so something that I'm looking at is that in designing those studies, we've used a lot of positive stimuli. So we've asked people when we're trying to learn about risk preferences, uh, or dealing with uncertainty, we say, do you want to have this gamble with only upsides or this gamble with smaller upsides? And uh, so we can certainly see if someone's willing to go for a bigger, riskier outcome versus play it safe with a smaller uh, positive outcome. But both are still great. You still get something. Uh, you still have a chance at something uh, in the end. And I have found in my work and others as well that those types of more positive decisions were more likely to make errors in. When things are going well and things are feeling great, you're more likely to just go with your gut. And I'd uh, go with that initial response. Sometimes that's fine, but a lot of times that then leads us to, as Dr. Bidia said, misinterpret uh, the information we're dealing with, makes uh, errors in evaluating those outcomes and, and lead us to an outcome that is, is suboptimal for our situation. Uh, so I'm sort of assessing the, the magnitude of that issue, going back, looking at some things we thought were super duper robust and uh, really big different really big effects that may not actually be so robust out in the world so that when we're actually trying to implement uh, our findings, we will see results.
0: And Dr. Padilla, um, what's the main thing that you're trying to understand? How is your research different from Dr. Perfecto's?
1: My research is maybe different from most people who study decision-making, honestly, in, in the fact that I like to examine how we can change the information that people are presented with to help them make better decisions. And I specifically study data visualizations. So I'm looking at creating forecasts with uncertainty and visualizing that data to try to help people understand the, the risk that they might be under. Um, so that's a very you know, wholly different angle that I bring to it.
0: So what are some of the main reasons that people make bad decisions?
2: That is such a good question. It is what hundreds of people have spent decades trying to get a good grip on and hundreds more will in the decades to come. I think both of us can speak to one or two particular reasons uh, where, where people might go wrong. I touched on one already where folks uh, might go with their gut a little bit too readily. I think that aspect of the positivity or negativity of what you're dealing with, people might not realize the extent to which. That can influence how likely you are to, to make a snap decision versus sit with it for a while. Uh, so I would say one main root of the problem is that people just sometimes go too fast. You know, feels right. They go with what they see and uh, then they they end up somewhere they don't want to be. Whereas if they had taken a little bit more time and sat with it, they wouldn't have made those errors. And when I say more time, I don't mean like sleep on it, come back to it in a few hours. I mean like 30 seconds, 10 seconds, even that amount of time, uh, we readily find that folks can, uh, and by we, I mean, not just me, but decision-making researchers more generally, find that people can recognize that they might have misinterpreted something or they're coming at the problem from the wrong perspective, uh, or even just that they made a mistake. They, uh, and so by just
1: taking a second,
2: checking yourself, Uh, people could be a bunch better off.
1: Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And I think that that ties nicely into the way that I think about it, which is that, you know, throughout human evolution, we have been able to make some pretty fast snap decisions that have worked out fairly well for us. We are now in a very complicated world with lots of things that there's no reason that we would have evolved the ability to you know, calculate long-term financial stock projections or, you know, any of the very complicated long-term things that we have to make decisions with. So for that reason, our intuitions sometimes fail us. So if we can slow down and try to kind of activate a more analytical approach, that can sometimes um, be very useful. And I think in addition to to that, (laughs) I'll say my general refrain of the way that information has been presented to us isn't easy to understand either. It is hard for the average person to look at probabilities and forecasts and understand what they mean and make effective decisions. And it's not their fault. Um, And I think that there's a lot more that can be done to make that information easier for all people to understand. And a lot of people are working on that particular problem. So I think it's a dual issue of um, you know, we have some strategies that might not be working for us, including making these gut decisions, but also the information that we're working with is very complicated, More probably more complicated than it necessarily needs to be.
0: But it's some of the problem that we as a society are not as math literate or probability literate as we should be. So, for example, when people hear that a vaccine is 90 percent effective, then, they, then then there are people out there who say, well, but that's not good enough. What about the other 10 percent? And then they don't get the vaccine. I mean, what is wrong with us that, that we can't understand that 90 percent is it's a
1: pretty good number? Yeah, I'm. <laughs> people always mention that as, you know, wouldn't it be great if we all could be more math literate? And I agree. However, I do think that that's not the only solution because the American population is fairly well educated and we're not the only group of people who need to interpret this information. Um, If you can think about the people who are most in need of decision support, they likely have the least amount of education. So I think in some ways, blaming people for not being more literate isn't fair. I think that people want to make their best decision and they might be in a circumstance where they didn't have access to certain types of education and that shouldn't mean that they have poor health outcomes. I think it's our responsibility as scientists and good citizens of the world to ensure that we're not negatively impacting people simply because they didn't have access to high quality higher education.
0: Well, let me ask, what are some of the effective strategies for helping people to make good decisions? And what are some of the strategies that don't work and that might even backfire by driving people to do exactly the opposite of what we're trying to convince them to do? And maybe this is the place where I ask you both to explain some terms that are used in in your research, choice architecture and libertarian paternalism, for example.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think choice architecture... uh, one could describe, and I don't know uh, if uh, Dr. Padilla sees sees herself this way, but uh, you could imagine framing the information, visualizing the information differently as a form of choice architecture. So when you think of the choice architect, it is the person who is structuring how the decision is phrased. So it is not, it doesn't fall out of the sky. Someone has to decide, are we going to frame the decision positively, like do you want to increase your contributions to retirement uh, or more neutrally, what do you want to do with the with your uh, upcoming elections? Do you want to increase or decrease? Should increase come first? Should increase come second? Uh, when should you mention how much it's going to increase? All of these decisions have to be made by somebody that is the choice architect. Uh, and the way in which all of those uh approaches, I don't want to keep saying decisions, but in the way in which all of these little decisions uh, that the person framing the actual decision needs to make, how that impacts what people actually do in the end uh, would, be, would be choice architecture. I think libertarian paternalism comes from uh, a particular way of creating, of being that choice architect, of creating those decisions, saying, I'm going to, I know as the person uh, that's the choice architect. I know what answer you should pick. I don't want to force you to pick it, but I'm going to make it really easy for you to pick it and hard for you to not pick it.
0: And so are, are, are those methods then that, that help people make better decisions? Well, that's see that now that that's a thorny question. <laughs> uh, it depends on the, on the benevolence
2: of the the choice architect. Certainly a, a controversial question these days of, uh, who has the best idea of what is best for people. So this, uh, Development of this term choice architecture and libertarian paternalism is a big uh, celebration of getting more people to save more for retirement. And that's great if you have the money to save for retirement. Uh, And so some people uh, who might not be in such a good financial position, they might be able to do better for themselves with that money now instead of being funneled through defaults and where options are pre-selected for you and you need to do work to do something else. Uh, they might not understand uh, like what uh, Dr. Padilla is talking about. Uh, they might not be able to figure out uh, the, how the decision has already been made in some way for them. Uh, and so whether that's the right move or maybe we've gone too far is, is certainly a, a hot topic these days.
0: Uh, Dr. Padilla, I want to ask you, because you, you study some very consequential decisions that, that people have to make, such as how to decide whether to evacuate during, when you're faced by the threat of of a hurricane. And I know you've come up with some data visualizations that, that help people. But, I mean, what are weather forecasters doing wrong that drive people to make bad decisions when they are perhaps in the path of, of a hurricane?
1: This kind of ties into what Dr. Perfecto was just mentioning about, you know, who is the decider of what the right decision is. And the approach that I take is, I don't know if everyone should evacuate. That's, you know, I'm, I'm a, a cognitive scientist, <laughs> but I do know if someone misinterprets something, misunderstands information being presented to them. So I can at least identify when there is a, you know, a massive failing in how people are interpreting um, what, what they're presented with. So I kind of take the standpoint of if I can at least reduce some of the errors then, you know, that won't be in the process. (laughs) I'm not sure if I'm making the decision better, but I'm certainly removing some of theirs. And we can do that with data visualizations. Um, And part of what has happened historically is people didn't appreciate the importance of how that data visualizations were displayed to people. And there's some type of visualizations like the cone of uncertainty, which kind of starts at a point and grows, the width of the cone grows, and it is intended to show the kind of the mean path of the storm. And it is a 66% confidence interval around the mean predicted path. Well, you know, most people don't know what a 66% confidence interval is. And so instead they see it as the storm growing in size over time because they see a small point and it gets bigger. So reasonably, they think the storm's growing in size. That is, um, I think, a visualization that hadn't been tested for the last 30 years that it's been in use. And so no one really appreciated that it was causing massive um, confusion and misinterpretation of what the storm was going to do. And, you know, more recently, we've been studying these in a careful way and studying alternatives to those classic visualizations that at least don't have those same misinterpretations. Again, I'm not trying to make someone evacuate or not. I'm just trying to help them understand where the storm is going to go. Successfully to empower their decision-making. Let's
0: talk for a minute about the, um, the dichotomy between time perception and, and decision-making. So if you're making a decision that it's what you're going to wear to work tomorrow, that's one thing. But if you're trying to make a decision about uh, how we save the planet? You know, what what do we do to stop global warming? That People have a a problem understanding something that is so far out in the distance that they don't know how to make any kind of decision about. What can we do to get people to better understand how to make those kinds of decisions effectively at, at this point in time?
2: You were hinting at it a bit, Kim, of sort of making that really far off abstract thing much more concrete and feeling real here, Uh, there's some cool work by Hal Hirschfield that talks about sort of imagining yourself farther along. And so he does, he does cool stuff like, like aging people's faces in in photos and being like, this is you in 50 years. Now, what are your thoughts about sort of what's going to happen in 50 years? And you're like, oh, like, that's me. Like, I'm going to be there. Like, it feels, it feels more concrete. And so we think about it as feeling sooner uh, and evaluating it uh, like we would a, a more closer in time event, uh, so taking steps, like I said, like you hinted at, uh, taking steps to to make that feel real now uh, could certainly be beneficial. So it's it personalizing it. Yeah. So that that is one way uh, to do it. So certainly you could think of uh, time. So there's this there's this whole literature on construal level theory. Uh, that talks about how things can feel very abstract and concrete. And that abstract versus concrete continuum can emerge in time, like things are far away in time versus close in time. uh, But they can also emerge interpersonally, like things that matter to me versus things that matter to people farther away from me that are less related to me, concepts that are less related to me. So psychology is very related to me, economics is maybe next closer, but theoretical physics, much farther away uh, from me. Uh, I don't do anything related to, to theoretical physics. Uh, and so, by, by bringing it closer to me on any of those dimensions can help make it more more concrete. So, uh, bringing, putting myself into that situation can help.
0: Dr. Padilla, any thoughts on, on how to help people visualize things that are so far in the future but help them make the right decisions now?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that data visualizations can do is to remove some of that abstraction. We can show similar to what Dr. Perfecto was, was indicating what the floodplain of your home will look like in 50 years. And you can use that information, you can just see it to help you make decisions now about getting flood insurance. Or we can show you what it would look like if we did forest restoration in this area and how we can reduce the risk over long-term. And you can just see it (laughs) with data visualizations in ways that you wouldn't be able to before. So I think making things more concrete, less abstract, especially in these long-term future projections, I think that's really one of the powers of data visualizations that have just recently been um, considered as, as a resource. So, with the advent
0: of the internet, we now have access to huge amounts of information in an instant, whereas in pre-internet days, if we wanted to make a decision regarding, say, which car to buy or what college to attend, you know, the research was very labor-intensive. You might have to go to a bunch of dealerships, you talk to your friends and neighbors, maybe you go to the library and look at books. Um, now. Um you know, everything is is immediately um, available on, on the Internet. And I'm wondering, is that making decision-making easier for people or more difficult? Do we know?
2: I know uh, Barry Schwartz, uh, long, longtime psychologist at Swarthmore and, and Berkeley, heard talks about how when we have so many options available... Uh, the, the work on choice overload, whether like having so many options and I feel I can't choose or feel less uh, happy with that uh, is, is mixed. Uh, still, still an ongoing debate, something that's hard to study in the lab but that probably does exist out in the field. Uh, but Barry Schwartz's work, it says if we, if we have a lot of options, it feels like we have a lot of potential, like we should be able to find the perfect thing. Uh, or we, I'm in marketing, so I always couch it in products and whatnot. Uh, but if I if I'm looking for a college, like I should be able to eliminate my uncertainty. I have all these forums with students I can talk to. I have lots of resources available at, at the t- click of a mouse that, to be able to to learn about the school. So I should feel really confident. But that all that information doesn't perfectly solve the problem for us. And so, we might feel less satisfied with what we come up with in the end, that I feel like I should know exactly what I want. I feel like I should find everything, but I don't. And so, now I'm uh, less less happy with what I get.
1: Dr. Padilla, easier or harder? I think more complex would be my answer to that. I think I think what happens partly is that, you know, we are information foragers, we go online and we kind of search for information. And so the way we do that is biased. We're kind of looking for things that affirm our own beliefs most of the time. So we are, have a tendency to find things that affirm our own beliefs. And within that we're exposed to lots of misinformation and being able to identify what misinformation is, is very challenging, especially if it affirms your own beliefs. You're more likely to believe it's true if it matches your, your own beliefs. So we have a whole new set of problems that we have no, haven't, you know, developed any skills at combating, which makes the whole thing very complicated. And I think For me, it really brings this new concept of trust to the forefront. Now we have to evaluate the information that we're taking in and think about how much we trust it. And trust is a whole complicated um, area of exploration that doesn't necessarily correspond with how effective or useful the information is. Oftentimes we trust things that don't always help us make the best possible decision. At least that's what my work has been finding that um, they don't always go together. So I think that that's a new problem that the internet is, is presenting to us is that we now have to evaluate trust and we have to forge <laughs> this information for us. And there's certain people who are profiting off of trying to get us to trust things that aren't necessarily true.
0: So is artificial intelligence going to save us? <laughs> If we can use artificial intelligence to sift through a lot of this data and maybe identify the things that are fake, you know, we're confronted with a lot of information, as you just said, Dr. Padilla, that that isn't, it's just not accurate. Uh, How will, uh, what role will AI be playing going forward, do you think?
1: I mean, it's really going to be playing a massive role, I, I'm maybe not as much in our own personal decisions, but certainly at decisions that are made on institutional government level, um, kind of high impact decisions. And I feel like I'm an outlier in saying that AI can be very useful. I've always, every time I talk with colleagues about this, I'm, I'm the one who thinks AI could be good. Um <laughs> But there's this general apprehension to trust AI, to kind of give our decisions over to artificial intelligence, partly because there's a whole history of AI also making biased decisions because they're made by people. And people, you know, have biased input data and have biased, you know, different algorithms and so forth. And I think that's a very real problem. And I'm very excited that there's many um, ethicists who are, are working on, on those particular issues. But I do think that we should start to get comfortable with a future that is not far off where many decisions will be curated in some capacity by AI, where rather than having thousands of things available to us, there'll be some type of decision scaffolding that AI will be doing for us. And, um, that's the future that I see, which I think could be a good one if, you know, if there's a lot of people involved in the AI development process and not just certain groups of people that um, don't necessarily represent all of the interests of, of the people making the decisions.
0: Dr. Perfecto, do you share those thoughts or do you come down on a, a different side of the question?
2: Yeah, I think, I think it's, that, it's that last if that is the most important component. Because uh, as as Dr. Padilla said, it's and like we were talking about with choice architecture, uh, it's the the people are event are the ones making the decisions. Whether it is in terms of choice architecture, actually forming the decision that is being made for you in that moment, the actual thing you're gonna see when you're electing your retirement plans, or whether they are farther upstream, uh, creating the thing that will eventually help create that decision scaffolding as. Uh, Dr. Pedia said to then present you with uh, a decision and it's options down the road. So I think that's a really big component to consider. Uh, but I think everyone is acknowledges uh, that main, Dr. Pedia's main point that it's happening. It's uh, AI and algorithms are constantly increasing every day their presence in our lives and uh, in our decision making. And so there's a lot of work ongoing in the field of decision making on the academic side investigating how people evaluate algorithms and uh, how we can help people or how and when people uh, shy away or shun completely uh, algorithms in certain contexts, what happens when they make mistakes, how do people respond to that uh, and how we can improve people's uh, perceptions of them and making sure that uh, they since oftentimes the the algorithm is going to help you make a better decision if the big if if it's made properly and has has the right inputs uh, and we want people to be excited and willing to go with this good decision that uh, that the algorithm is, is helping you make so a lot of cool work uh, ongoing. Uh, by people helping or learning about ways to facilitate that uh, adoption of, of algorithms in people's decision making
0: so let me ask you both um what are the big questions you're working on now um dr padilla where what's your research looking at in uh, right at at this moment?
1: I'm really interested in the question of how to facilitate trust and what that means (laughs) Um, i think partly because i study a lot of forecast visualizations there's lots of interesting questions about um, how much uncertainty is useful to show particularly in facilitating trust you can imagine if you had a forecast um of you know it's you know flooding in california right now if there was a a forecast that said you know, every day this month, there was some potential of flooding. That would be correct, but in some ways it would feel like uh, a cry wolf effect. Like it's, it's saying that there'd be flooding too much going on. So what you really want is a forecast that gives you just the right amount of information to make your decision and not too much uncertainty because then you can't, you know, make your decision with it. I'm looking at trade-offs and trying to identify the sweet spot and how much uncertainty we want to show people um, and how that can support both trust and performance because I think um, there's certainly thresholds there that that haven't been carefully identified.
0: And Dr. Perfecto, what are you looking at these days? Uh, I
2: I teased it a little bit earlier. Uh, I'm uh, right now spending a lot of time getting a sense of whether and how we've been creating these more abstract studies in the lab, uh, how, whether and how that influences the, the likelihood of success down down the road. How closely is, is the lab matching the real world? Since in the end, that's what we really care about is, is helping out the real world. Uh, and so uh, in doing that, I am... Having lots of fun going through uh, lots of longstanding literature, seeing, uh, identifying common mistakes made, uh, rectifying those mistakes and getting a sense of the impact that 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 might have in terms of when uh, this particular error or bias might be made out in the real world.
0: And for our, our listeners, any, any words of, of wisdom? I think, Dr. Perfecto, you talked about um, not rushing to make decisions to even just take take a few seconds to think. Dr. Padilla, any other ideas that you can offer to to our listeners, you know, more practical advice on how to, how to make better decisions?
1: Finding situations in which you can play around with the data can start to give people an intuitive sense of some of the uncertainties and variability in the data. I think what tends to happen is people in the general public, they just get shown a forecast on the news and they just have to decide, do I trust it? Do I not? What do I do with it? And that's a very one-sided path of the information. There's some places that you can go online that allow you to interact with the data and give you the opportunity to say, what if I extend this forecast a little? Or what if I change the parameters of this forecast? and then you can kind of get a sense of what the different aspects are affecting this particular model for really any type of natural disaster or biological disaster. They have these with COVID, they have it with fires and and hurricanes and so forth. Um, So if you're wanting to make a a better decision for those types of things and you sincerely care about it, consider getting a little bit more comfortable with the data yourself and finding those types of sites that um, empower people with the data that they can um, play around with. That that could help to give people this um, more intuitions about what the forecast will do and, and the uncertainty that goes into those forecasts.
0: And Dr. Perfecto, last word, any practical advice? In addition to, hold on a second, hold
2: on 10 seconds uh, <laughs> and, and think about it. Uh, I would say to make sure you are bringing the right tools to task that if it's a very difficult decision, then you should really take some time and sit with it. If it's a really easy, like what cereal am I going to have? Maybe don't, you know, we only have so much time here on this earth Uh, and just, just grab, grab the cocoa puffs, whatever Uh, you can, you can take this, the special cake tomorrow and uh, making sure that you are asked, answering the, the question that is being asked. So if, uh, if you are in the supermarket and you're trying to decide what to get, uh, and the easiest question is what do I want to buy? The harder question is what should I be buying uh what 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 is the best what is the healthiest option? What did my doctor say that I should get uh that's a that's a harder question to answer maybe one you don't want to answer as much as what do I want? Uh, and so making sure that you are actually not substituting a different question, an easier question for a harder one uh, can can also be helpful.
0: Well, I want to thank you both for joining me today. This has been really interesting and and enlightening. I appreciate your thoughts, and I'm going to grab the Cocoa Puffs. Thank you. (laughs) Enjoy. (laughs) It was great talking with you. Thanks so much for having us. For previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology, you can visit us on our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org or you can find us on Apple, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology@apa.org. at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Kondayan. Thank you for listening. To the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills.